justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo, and today I'm a little bit more than reasonably suspicious because Scott announced that he would like to open the podcast with a holiday theme reading. I have no idea what we're getting into, so against my better judgment, Scott, go ahead and bring our listeners some holiday cheer. Thanks, Mandy. I would love to. We're calling this a very carpenter Christmas. It was the night before Christmas and all through the home. The smartphones pinged cell towers, ne'er did they roam. Their location was fixed there all through the night, could be proven in court with no warrant in sight. Then what to my wondering eyes did appear but Chief Justice Roberts like a red-nosed reindeer, leading the way for SCOTUS to hone a warrant requirement for tracking your phone. On Roberts, on Gorsuch, on Sotomayor, tracking us isn't what phones are for. On Thomas, on Ginsburg, on Breyer, on Kagan, please give Fourth Amendment fans something to cheer again and clearly explain before it goes out of sight why not being tracked by our phones is a right. (laughs) Scott, you know you're ruining Christmas for all of us. Ruining it? Come on. (laughs) People sitting down, are they supposed to really think about government surveillance as they, you know... Have a Yuletide celebration. Hey, Christmas is all about surveillance when you really think about it. How do you think Santa compiles his naughty list? <laughs> Elf on a shelf, Scott. I don't know what you're talking about. That's right. He's conspiring with Big Brother. There's really no other explanation. There's a whole Christmas component to the surveillance state apparatus that really doesn't get talked about, is all I'm saying. And by the way, Rudolph the Reindeer is definitely a cyborg. There's no doubt. I, I, I Yeah, I've never really question that ever all right i'm glad we got that settled hello boys and girls and welcome to the december's 2017 edition of the reasonably suspicious podcast covering texas criminal justice politics and policy i'm scott henson policy director at just liberty here today with our good friend amanda marzullo whose day job is executive director at the texas defender service got a good show for you today with a couple of excellent guest interviews coming up soon Mandy, what are you looking forward to on the podcast? I'm looking forward to discussing ex parte Pena, which is one of the most divisive decisions we've seen from the Court of Criminal Appeals in a while. All right. First up, though, Scott's holiday poem was a reference to U.S. v. Carpenter, a case in which the U.S. Supreme Court will decide whether the government must secure a search warrant under the Fourth Amendment in order to access cell phone location data, which is stored by your cell phone service provider. Analysts at SCOTUS blog predict that the court is likely to find a warrant requirement based on the justice comments at oral argument. Some listeners may be aware that Scott was part of a group called the Texas Electronic Privacy Coalition, which pushed unsuccessfully at the Texas legislature in 2013 and 2015 to require a warrant for the government to gather personal cell phone location data. So, Scott, what do you think? Will the court require a warrant for cell phone tracking? Well, the reason that SCOTUS blog thought that it was likely that the court would end up requiring a warrant is that Chief Justice Roberts came out pretty strongly, really more strongly. He came out on a more civil libertarian position than the ACLU lawyer who was arguing the case. Justice Gorsuch, who's relatively new to the court, replaced Scalia, also came out pretty strongly on a warrant side. And so when you start counting heads from the oral arguments, it really does look like that there are enough votes there to get to requiring a warrant for the first time. And this is a 
an incredibly huge deal that's flown under the radar for years. Most Americans really are not aware of the issue or how important it is. But for everyone who owns a cell phone, all these smartphones, everyone's carrying Mm -hmm. around with them, that is not just a phone. It's not just a computer. It's not just a camera or a recorder. It is also a tracking device that allows your phone company and, by extension, the government to track everywhere you go. And the more cell towers there are, the more femto cells you see in offices and homes to boost Mm -hmm. signals, the more accurate this location data gets. Or accurate or or precise. Yeah, precise. That's right. You can can tell more precisely where someone is Mm -hmm. um, when there were fewer cell phone towers um, you, the way you find someone is to triangulate. Yeah. And so the more there are, you can triangulate in smaller and smaller spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it has gotten so extreme that in some cases, merchants, um, department stores, say, are using location data within their stores so they can tell when customers are lingering by a certain display more often <laughs> and using it for marketing purposes. So the targeting, the location tracking can now be done at such a finite level. Even indoors, you can have meaningful location data. As far as just traveling from place to place throughout your day, it's pretty accurate at this point. Okay. So that's every person. And the question is, should the government have to have a warrant for this? Or can they just get it by asking your phone company for the information, which is called the third party doctrine? That's what this sort of information has traditionally been released under. And a lot of people believe that this location data is just a lot more personal and reveals a lot more about you than just what phone numbers you dial or who dialed you or whatever like you might get with a pen register. Yeah, and I think some of the legal analysis has also pointed out that the third-party doctrine, more and more, as we use technology differently, is becoming an end run around the warrant requirements. The Supreme Court has said that you need a warrant to access information that's on your phone, but as you start to back up information that is typically just on your phone, you know, in in the cloud or online, That means that the government can also have access to your calendar, to your contacts, to your text messages. That's exactly right. And this is just another example of how the Fourth Amendment, you know, which was written 230 years ago, isn't really completely up to the task of handling all the issues that confront us because of modern technology and you know, this is one of those moments when the court is going to have to really come up with a, a novel approach. They can't simply look to the text of the Fourth Amendment and and see something that, that, that gets you to metadata mm. from your cell phone. That, that wasn't considered in 1789 when all this was, was, was first brought up. Coming up. Scott and I discuss a strange case in which a cop planted drugs, but the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals upheld a conviction in an unusual split decision in which the dissenters made up the majority but still lost. And Scott interviews the co-founder of the National Innocence Project, Peter Neufeld, discussing the role of state government in the 21st century forensic science reform movement. First, though... New sex abuse allegations at the Gainesville State School have rocked Texas's youth prison system, resulting in a wave of indictments. In response, legislators are considering a massive overhaul. To get a better sense of it all, Scott sat down with Randy Grissom Swicegood, 
a veteran news reporter and departing Austin bureau chief of the Dallas Morning News. She covered the Gainesville scandal in her final story for the Dallas News before leaving to launch a second career, of all things, as a professional triathlete. We'll publish Scott and Brandy's full conversation separately, including her thoughts on leaving journalism at the height of her career. But for now, let's learn more about what happened in Gainesville and possible ways to prevent such abuse. Brandy, thank you so much for talking with me today. The very last story that you covered at the Dallas Morning News was about the Texas Juvenile Justice Department and the scandal at the Gainesville State School, where I guess now four employees have been indicted on sex assault and related charges. And those of us who have been around as long as you and I have look at this and our heads just drop and we think, oh my gosh, it's our Texas Youth Commission scandal all over again. Somebody bring in Nate Blakesley. We need to, you know, <laughs> dredge Get him up, back from New York. Dredge up all the same, you know, issues and topics that we all, you know, slogged through ten years ago. Uh, why don't you tell us what happened at Gainesville and 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 sort of walk us through this latest new episode? Sure. So unfortunately, there are a lot of things that have happened at Gainesville. You know, sort of the most salacious, I guess, are the most recent arrests. There were four TJJD correctional officers who were arrested under allegations that they were involved in sexual misconduct with youths on the campus. One of them was arrested last year, last fall, and he has since been sentenced to 10 years in prison. The other three were, were arrested just in the last couple of months, um, I believe since August and September. One of the women who was arrested was uh, allegedly pregnant with the baby of one of the youths that she had an affair with. Yikes. Yeah. she, According to the emails that we saw uh, and the text messages that she shared back and forth with the youth, she said she wanted to have five of his children and she would allow him to name some of them. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And and how old was this youth, do we know? We're not exactly sure. I think he was over the age of 18, okay. according to the, the records. But because he was obviously a person in custody, that's that automatically. Posit- automatically makes it a problem. But it wasn't just the sexual misconduct between the youths and the officers. There was also a psychologist who was told he could resign or be fired after there were allegations that he was asking some of the youths to uh, masturbate in front of him and providing them with pornography. You know, one of the other things that we found out about is not just sexual assault, but also violence. We got reports from the ombudsman's office about JCOs, correctional officers, um, offering to pay youths in cash and drugs for them to assault other youths on the campus. Right. That was astonishing. That, to me, was the piece that almost made this more, not I don't know, more egregious, but who you, I don't know how you quantify such things. But that sure was an eye-opener. Yeah. Um, and that, how, how widespread was this? Was this a one-off, or is it something that really was ongoing? Well, we so in our reporting, we kind of debated about how much of that to include in our story, because... The ombudsman's office didn't actually witness any of that happening, right? And they were able to interview several youths who independently gave similar stories about what what had happened to them. And 
the uh, the TJJD wasn't able to verify any of those stories because the youths wouldn't give names because they were afraid that they of retribution. So there isn't any. Yeah. There wasn't. They'd either been beaten up or they'd been paid. <laughs> right. So so we went ahead and decided because so many youths of had independently had the same story. We figured we thought it was worth reporting. So. Where do we go from here? It's like we're having this deja vu moment, and yet, you know, a lot of the same legislators are even still here in charge of some of these systems. You know, mm-hmm. Harold Dutton in the House or John Whitmire in the Senate. And mm-hmm. they've, we've been through this once already. Right. And so what what options are there to try and do this differently or better? Um, because obviously we didn't solve the problem 10 years ago. I think – the advocates who who I spoke with said, you know, when we went through this in 2007, lawmakers made a good start at this overhaul, but then they just stopped. So we got down to where we are now with, with five of these units, but they're still out in far-flung areas. There's still these fall, like sprawling, you know, secure secure facilities that really are not conducive to the kind of rehabilitation that youths really need. So we, you know, we they lawmakers started this move toward the smaller home like settings, making sure that kids are staying in their communities that are closer to families, closer to urban areas where they have access to resources that they need. But what the advocates will say is that they didn't finish the job, and to them, finishing the job means closing down the rest of these facilities and really making a transition to home-like settings where kids can get the kind of access to sources that will really help them to rehabilitate because, you know, they're still young and their brains are still forming. And so if at any opportunity we (laughs) might have the chance to fix these kids' lives and help them get on track, now, now is it. I, I think that's right, and and I would the one thing I would add to that is that ten years ago, one of the, the really good things they did, uh, the legislature did, was to create something called a, a blue ribbon panel, where they really did get some of the top minds, not just in Texas but in the country, to come in and advise them and do a big report on how they should do these reforms. And they had this enormous laundry list. Um, I looked at it again after I saw your story. I pulled it back up to. To remind myself, sort of, okay, well, what did did we and didn't we do? And they they had dozens and dozens of recommendations, and they did implement quite a few. But when they got to the ones that you're talking about, about the smaller facilities, closer to urban areas, it just stops. And then there's a big part of the list that just no, 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 no. Yeah. Um, and uh, just to give listeners a little refresher, uh, the Blue Ribbon Panel had recommended that we shift to something called the Missouri model which is smaller units, all under 48 beds or less, um, with higher staffing ratios and basically more treatment and occupational opportunities Mm -hmm. and and training and all sorts of things that you're just not going to be able to give them out in Gainesville. Right. And so we did have sort of a blueprint for this, and it was frankly a money issue as to why they didn't do that someone would have to fork over and and pay for it and well i think it you're right it's a money issue but it's also a political will issue because in a in order to do that they have to close down the rest of these facilities and in some of these small rural towns where the facilities exist the local economy relies on 
those facilities to continue operating and shutting them down will be a big political fight for the lawmakers who live in those areas. And and we saw it happen with the ones that have shut down. Remember what a big fiasco it was with Corsicana when oh, that shut down. That's right. So, you know, it's not something that lawmakers really want to jump into and it's going to require a lot of political fighting if it's going to get done. Next up, a game segment called Home Court Advantage, in which we discuss a habeas corpus writ out of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals that raised eyebrows throughout the legal community. Let's start with Ex Parte Pena which was an especially bizarre case because five out of nine members of the court dissented to the outcome and a four-member plurality managed to dictate the result. Mandy, put that Ivy League law degree to work and explain this case and how we got to this weird outcome. Okay, so let's, in reverse, let's start with the weird outcome. The reason why we're stuck with the sort of a plurality decision here is that the five dissenters couldn't agree on a course of action. So four wanted to overturn the conviction, and the fifth judge wanted to remand the case for further fact-finding. So we're stuck with sort of a plurality of four judges who wanted to preserve the conviction to hold. Now, what's extraordinary about this case is the fact pattern. So Mr. Pena pled guilty to a felony possession with intent to distribute of cocaine. There was no trial. But there was a very weird backstory to that, right? Uh, yeah, so, no, so so going into that, that fact party, what happened was is that one of his arresting officers, Officer Carrion, was prosecuted for evidence tampering and drug trafficking. Essentially, he was working for the local cartel, but also stealing from them at the same time. So he would basically swap out drugs that were being transported with sheetrock and replace it so that he then was able to profit from these stops. Right. So to be really clear, what happened was Mr. Flores allegedly had been hired to to transport drugs and there was a car parked and the and the cartel was going to put drugs in the back seat, right? In the in in a cooler in the back seat. And the police officer knew about this plan. And while Mr. Flores was away from the car, He got in the car, took the actual drugs, planted 26 kilos of sheetrock laced with cocaine. Yes. And that's, in fact, what Mr. Flores was pulled over with when they got him for failure to signal a lane change. Yes. And so that's the weird part about this is that there is evidence that Mr. Flores had some intent to maybe be involved in drug trafficking, but there's more evidence that this cop actually stole the drugs himself and then framed him. Well, he was convicted for doing that. Right. I mean, you know, after, so after Pena pled guilty, he was Mr. The police officer who conducted the field test of the drugs. So that's basically the the big evidence that was used in sort of influencing Pena's decision to enter a plea was this test that was conducted by officer Carrion that showed that the substance was cocaine. After Pena enters a plea, the federal authorities prosecute Carrion and test 
the purported drugs that were found in Pena's backseat. And they find that it is consisting largely of sheetrock and some tr- in some of the packets they had trace evidence of cocaine. So in fact, Mr. Pena was transporting less than a gram of cocaine, but he pled guilty to transporting 400 kilograms or more. And this is the crazy part to me is that the cocaine that he supposedly was convicted of transporting was actually the sheetrock that was planted by the officer. Well, the majority in the Court of Criminal Appeals said, oh, well, it's common practice to include the the weight of dilutants. Well, they, didn't, they didn't say it was common practice. Basically, what they said is that the law there you go. statutorily uh, you know, directs the state to include the weight of any dilutant or solvent used in a drug. In, except, in determining the weight. So, except in this case, it was a, a, a dilutant that had been put there by a law enforcement officer and that actually wasn't part of the drug dealers like making the drug, you know, well, cutting the drug. It was it was part of law enforcement framing well, the, the defendant. Well, or as, you know, Scott Walker and Judge Richardson both sort of point out in their dissents that we're not talking about a dilutant of a substance that then just gives you more drugs to distribute. You're talking about basically sprinkling a trace amount of drugs on something that is not a drug. So it, basically in doing that, you, you're you making the cocaine useless from a drug consumption standpoint. So it, it's, I think whether like who put the drugs there or the like the solvents there or not it's an unworkable standard to say that sheetrock laced with cocaine is the same thing as cocaine that might be cut with something to you know increase your yield but it really is even more egregious i think when it's the when it's law enforcement themselves actually putting it there well, and framing someone i mean well, that's well, it goes to the veracity of the whole prosecution, right? Like that—that's what makes it crazy. But if you look at the majority system, like decision, they sort of presuppose that Pena is still tech is still guilty of transporting a felony quantity of cocaine based on this dilutant rule. That it doesn't matter how diluted we're talking about, even if it's fundamentally or apparently a different. if the government added the dilutants instead of the defendant, it apparently just doesn't matter. You still get to uphold the conviction. We're not going to actually the, the at the state level. We're not going to hold anybody accountable. Mm-hmm. If the feds want to prosecute that well, cop, that's fine. But the court of criminal appeals doesn't care. They think it's fine and dandy if you frame someone, and then we're not going to to shut down that conviction. We're going to do everything we can to uphold it. It was really pretty grotesque. I understand, you know, that uh, the defendant here probably was intending to engage in trafficking. But to overlook this level of misconduct is is really outlandish. In in David Newell's concurrence, he actually sided with the, the majority there. He made a comment. There is a palpable sense of injustice from allowing a conviction to stand when it is infected by such misconduct from a member of law enforcement. And then he turned around and did precisely that. So he said himself, there's a palpable sense of injustice from the court's outcome. And even the people who sided with the court's outcome think that's true. Next up, 
This year, the organization that I work for, the Texas Defender Service, featured Peter Neufeld, co-founder of the National Innocence Project and a member of the recently disbanded National Forensic Science Commission as our featured speaker. Scott sat down with Peter afterward to talk about the state of forensic science nationally and the implication for states of the implosion of national forensic science reforms. We'll publish the full interview soon, but for now, here's Peter Neufeld explaining why state-level improvements will remain the driving force for forensic reform in the foreseeable future. I wanted to start, you had, um, in your speech to the Texas Defender Service luncheon, you had talked about Texas having really, I guess for the nation, sort of a surprising role in some of these innocence and, and forensics issues, and in particular about our Forensic Science Commission and our junk science writ. I kind of feel like our Texans almost take these things for granted now. And can you give us from your perspective what that looks like from New York and from the national Sure. So nationally, uh, during the Obama administration, uh, there was a major effort uh, to look at particularly the forensic issues and think that we needed a, a national federal solution because, quite honestly, if you have some piece of evidence tested in a laboratory in Houston or you have it in Buffalo, New York, they should get the same results just as they would in a clinical test. If you're sending in a, a sample of your kid's uh, uh uh, saliva to see whether or not she has, um, you know, some kind of disease, you'll get the same results from both labs. Well, the same thing should apply in crime laboratories. And um, we got a lot of good things passed and introduced um, a National Forensic Science Commission that I was appointed to by the president, um, uh, a standard-setting body, uh, efforts to review uh, the way that FBI agents and other federal agents testify about forensic disciplines that would be consistent with scientific principles, which became particularly uh, relevant after they found that in 96% of the hair cases, uh, FBI agents gave erroneous testimony which exceeded the limits of science. So all of this was moving along on four different fronts. And then, of course, we had the last election, and uh, Jeff Sessions became the attorney general, uh, last April, he abolished the commission. Um, he abolished the effort to standardize uh, language with outside input from statisticians and scientists. Uh, he uh, ended and suspended the review of the way agents testified in all other forensic disciplines. And basically, he brought to a screeching halt any effort by the federal government to enhance the quality of forensic science in the criminal justice system. So the, the, the responsibility fell much more to the states. And uh, in that regard, uh, Texas is leading the country uh, in two ways. Uh, Texas has a Forensic Science Commission, which is outstanding, which uh, has lots of stakeholders involved. Uh, they've sort of put petty differences aside, and they all have one thing in common. They want to see only the best forensic disciplines used in, in cases where life and liberty are at stake. And it's remarkable. Uh, New York had a commission before Texas, and it's an awful commission. It's a commission completely dominated by law enforcement and prosecutorial interests. And, uh, you know, the truth and principles play a back seat. So Texas should be uh, applauded for that. 
Number two, Texas got the, um, the so-called junk science statute uh, passed, which allows people to bring a writ uh, to uh, throw out an old conviction, which was based on what we now know as discredited forensic science. It's very important because science moves much more rapidly than law. And uh, so many of these disciplines are disreputable. So many of these disciplines have never been validated, have never been determined empirically to be reliable. But nevertheless, if a judge lets it in, that's the end of the uh, review. And just real quick to expound on that, uh, some of these disciplines are some of the most common ones used in law enforcement, from matching ballistics to uh, uh, fingerprinting, all these things that are basically pattern recognition, someone looking at it closely. Now that we don't have the National Forensic Commission, where do we go from here? Because we, we basically had, after the 2009 uh, National Academy of Sciences report, um, really the, the flaws in forensics had sort of been exposed and the commission that you were a part of was created to sort of say, okay, what do we do now that we know that all these things aren't really that scientific? It seems like we've kind of left it up in the air but the path to figure out what needs to happen next has vanished, at least at the national level. Oh, it certainly vanished at the national level. I mean, you had a commission which for the very first time had, in addition to stakeholders, uh, half a dozen world-class scientists who were not involved in forensics but are leading physicists, chemists, uh, biologists, uh, neuroscientists, all playing an active role. And, of course... Uh, with the end of the commission, uh, the Justice Department has determined that we no longer want independent scientists to give us any input. So you've replaced a body of 35 people, including a half a dozen independent scientists, with a forensic czar who was a, a deputy district attorney uh, from the Midwest who's not a scientist. And he and other people inside justice will unilaterally make all the decisions about forensics for the future. This month, we're introducing a new segment called Errors and Updates, in which we update or correct past stories based on new information. This is our seventh podcast, so we can update every story we've covered. No big errors to correct so far, or at least as far as we know there are no errors to correct, but several stories are worth updating. First up, last month we discussed a capital case out of Dallas in which police hypnotized an eyewitness who then changed her story. Closing arguments on a habeas corpus writ challenging the conviction began December 18th. Since then, we've discovered that forensic hypnosis is an actual certification track at the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement, with nearly a 1,000 officers trained in the technique since the late 80s. The Forensic Science Commission says it has no jurisdiction over forensic hypnosis because it doesn't involve physical evidence. I've asked for more information about the program under the Public Information Act, and we'll update more on this next month. The Austin City Council rejected the police union contract, which was the subject of a three-part segment in October, after 20 different organizations demanded their accountability measures and less spending growth for the police budget. Notably, the debate wasn't just about police oversight. Numerous speakers, as well as council members, expressed concern that the cost of the contract over the years had squeezed out other government spending with public safety implications. After we discussed forensic errors related to DNA mixture evidence in our August and September podcasts, 
The National Institute for Standards and Technology announced in October that it would comprehensively analyze DNA mixture forensics. In their statement, NIST warned that these proprietary technologies, quote, if misapplied, could lead to innocent people being wrongly convicted, end quote. Their results are expected out by next summer. And although Mandy said we had no errors, after our DNA mixture segment in August, we did get a letter from one of the companies with proprietary software, StarMix, asking for a retraction. But their two-page letter did not actually contest any specific factual claim that we made, so I replied that we wouldn't correct anything unless they provide more detail. We have not heard back from them since. We'll let you know if we do. That's right. Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm ready. Are you ready? Ready to go. A teacher who was raped by a Texas prison inmate blames understaffing in Texas prisons for being left alone and assaulted. Meanwhile, the Houston Chronicle reported that guard turnover in Texas prisons increased last year from 23% to 28%, with some units having more than 50% turnover every year. Scott, what can be done about this? Really, the only thing that can be done is to reduce the amount of incarceration in the state so that we can close some of these understaffed units. In the 90s, we put a lot of these units out in rural areas, and these places continue to depopulate, and they do not have enough workers to staff the units. Eventually, we're going to have to close some of those down, and the only way to do that really is to incarcerate fewer people. The number of people on Texas death rows declined from 460 in 1999 to 234 today, with only four new death sentences issued statewide in 2017. Meanwhile, no one from Harris County was executed or sentenced to death this year for the first time since 1976. Mandy, what's the significance here? The significance is that the practice when it comes to capital punishment in Harris County has caught up with public opinion. Harris County is a fairly moderate jurisdiction where it's clear that The electorate is pro-criminal justice reform. However, it has had a prosecutor office that has been pretty aggressive, both in seeking convictions and trying to get the harshest punishment possible. What we see is a change in practice there that is aligning itself with where its public is. Last one, the Dallas PD has launched a pilot program to respond to mental health calls with an interdisciplinary team led by mental health professionals instead of patrol officers. So Scott, will this reduce the number of police shootings of mentally ill people? I really think it will. It was interesting when David Brown, the former Dallas police chief, left office, he gave a prominent speech in which he said that police officers are being asked to do too many different things. They're being asked to solve too many different types of social problems. And mental health, mental illness is one of those biggest of those social problems that's been larded onto police officers' plate that they're really not equipped or trained to manage. So I think this is a really important development, and I think it will reduce the number of shootings. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzula with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We'll be back next month with another episode of Reasonably Suspicious. Until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. (laughs) 